Uh, God, I just thank you so much today uh, for the opportunity to study your word and to learn from you. Uh, I just ask that we would focus on you, uh, how great you are, how much you're here with us, and um, just that we would understand uh, this text well and understand how to apply it to our lives and that you would really truly get the glory for, um, for who you are. It's in your name we pray, amen. Okay, um, so uh, before I start today, I would like to just confess that it's been really difficult for me to prepare uh, teaching Habakkuk, and the reason is because this short little book um, actually contains a lot of information and a lot of connections to other parts of Scripture. And there's really no way that I can teach today all the themes, lessons, theological implications, and relationships to other scripture that are contained in these three chapters of Habakkuk. So I really want to encourage all of you to study the Bible for yourself. Uh, There's no real uh, replacement for self-study. And there's no way that I can communicate today all the things that I've learned in my study uh, of this book for this last week. Um... If you want to know God, you really need to study the books of the Bible intently and in depth, and uh, it will humble you and change your perspective. Okay, so uh, today we're covering chapter 3 of Habakkuk, and we'll also kind of uh, just close out the book in general. The thing I believe that God and Habakkuk would like us to consider in this text is the greatness of God in general, and specifically in saving his people. This chapter is a psalm or a song, and in it, Habakkuk is praising God, testifying to us of God's greatness, and committing to wait for God in faith. Habakkuk's uh, objective in sharing this with us is that we would be comforted and that we can trust God and humbly submit to Him regardless of our situation, even in terrible situations. And if I preach this text well, we will be both fearful of God's greatness and God's, just, God's justice and appreciative of God's uh, and joyful of God's salvation to his people, us. So let's start out by reviewing what we've covered so far. Uh, first of all, if you're not familiar with Habakkuk, Habakkuk was an Old Testament prophet. He preached towards the end of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, he doesn't know this uh, when the book starts, but Judah is about to fall to the Babylonians. So remember from chapter 1, uh, a few weeks ago, the Habakkuk was crying out to God of why God does not do something about the corruption that Habakkuk sees in Judah. He asks, why, God, do you allow these terrible things to continue? Why do you not judge the corrupt people that Habakkuk is seeing? So first, first thing I want you guys to notice is Habakkuk is crying out in anguish. And, and the reason for this is he, he's a person that cares about the people. He cares about uh, Judah. And he cares about justice. And God answers him and says, uh, I'm actually about to judge the corrupt people of Judah. And I'm going to do it through a judgment that I'm going to bring through the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk's confused by this answer. Why? Because he knows that the Babylonians are even more selfish and more corrupt than the people of Judah. They have more pride than the people that he's wanting God to judge. So he then asks, God, how can justice truly be served by glorifying a a people that's even more evil than the people that you're judging? So I identify with Habakkuk's frustration. 
there's a lot of inequity in this world. Um, there's a lot of injustice in this world. Isn't this a common problem for all of us? Maybe not the specific of Habakkuk's situation, but how often do we wonder why evil things are allowed to continue seemingly unchecked? Not only do we ask God, why do bad things happen to people unjustly, but we also ask him, why God do good things happen to evil people and through their evil acts? This is especially true when it hits close to home. When I or someone close to me suffers unjustly at the hands of someone acting in greed or selfishness, I really struggle in understanding why God allows this to happen. You know, it's, it's easier when it's in theory, but it's much more difficult when it's somebody we know or when it's us. And this is even worse when it happens in the church. Remember that Habakkuk is in Judah. He is among God's people. The, the equivalent in the Old Testament of the church would have been Judah and Israel. And those are the people that Habakkuk is seeing uh, this corruption happening among. So how much worse is it when we see corruption among Christians and we see other Christians either ignoring it and doing nothing or rationalizing and excusing it? I'm easily overwhelmed during these moments by the impacts of sin, and I hate it. Don't you? Evil is truly terrible, and the consequences of it are extremely destructive. This is the context of Habakkuk crying out to God in anguish and asking God why he doesn't judge the evil that he sees among God's people. So I want you to notice the second response from God is very different than the first. In the first response, God only responds with his words. When God responds in chapter 2, he shows himself to Habakkuk through a vision and through his words. It's a more full experience of God. He answers Habakkuk's question by addressing Habakkuk's deeper issue. Habakkuk is doubting the faithfulness of God. To confront this doubt, God shows himself to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is treated to a more full experience of God himself. We will see in chapter 3 that this completely transforms Habakkuk's perspective. God shows his power, his glory, and his justice. His response is not an answer to why God is planning to use the Babylonians to judge Judah. He just states that there is no escaping the justice of God in the end for all people. And at the same time, God will save all people that put their faith in him. These are the two messages that run throughout the book of Habakkuk. In other words, the Babylonians will be judged eventually too. He also rebukes Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4, by stating that the soul of the proud is not right within him, but that the righteous will live by faith. God does two things with this statement. First, he confronts Habakkuk that Habakkuk must live by faith. In, uh, in faith of God's justice and God's purpose. And second, by contrasting the proud with the righteous and stating that the righteous will live by faith in God, he defines true righteousness as practicing your faith in God instead of in yourself, pride. Chapter 2, verse 4 is the climax of the book. The righteous live by faith in God. Every action, every decision, every thought is to be directed by our faith that God is our salvation and our life. We are completed only in him and by him. There is one hope in this life, and that is our God, the only God. 
We can trust in God. What a comfort. So let's turn our Bibles to chapter 3 and take a look at our text. As you're turning there, uh, I want to describe a little bit about how I've organized um, my preaching about this text. I split it into four sections. It starts with an opening of Habakkuk talking to God and showing his reverence for God. We're going to see Habakkuk's change in his attitude and his perspective in the opening. Then Habakkuk is talking in, in general to the reader, relaying the vision that he has seen that God asked him to write down in chapter 2. And he's going to be praising God for God's splendor and God's power in this second section. In the third section, Habakkuk is going to be talking to God again, and he is praising God for his purpose in judgment, in this judgment that he's seen in the vision. And in the conclusion, Habakkuk's going to be praising God for his faithfulness and committing or recommitting to live joyfully through faith, through whatever may come in the future. So first, starting with the opening and the theme being fear and reverence for God, let's read the first two, two verses. It starts out with a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigioneth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Okay, just to give you a little bit of understanding of how it starts, we believe the reference to Shigioneth in verse 1 is a description of what type of song that this is. It may be an indication of how this song is to be sung or what type of music is to be used with it. Um, but the, the thing to know is that this is a song. And starting in chapter 2, the first thing I want you to notice is the shift in how Habakkuk approaches God. The first two discourses of Habakkuk started with a question. But this discourse or this conversation starts out by stating that he fears the work of God. The specific work that Habakkuk is referring to is the judgment of God described in chapter 2. Habakkuk has now seen God in action, and it is enough for him. He no longer frets over the specific ways of God. He no longer questions God's timing. He sees God's ways are much bigger than what he was considering before. He is overwhelmed and only rightly responds in fear of the greatness of God. He no longer asks for something specific. Before he was asking for God, remember that he was asking for God to judge the corrupt in Judah and later also the Babylonians. But notice in verse 2, he only asks that God revive his work and make it known. Essentially, that God be himself. He now defaults to the wisdom and the plans of God. Seeing the justice of God, Habakkuk no longer questions the methods. It is enough to know that God is completely just. Think about that for a minute and let that sink in. God is completely just. He is the perfect judge, not us. In chapter 2, verse 10, God says to the corrupt, You have devised shame for your house. You have forfeited your life. God is saying that the corrupt are destroying themselves because there is no escaping the justice of God in the end. God proclaimed five different woes in chapter 2 that undoubtedly resonated with Habakkuk and the injustices that he saw in Judah and in Babylon. And God emphasizes through these woes that the perpetrators of these injustices are doomed. 
we sometimes minimize this aspect of God in our culture. We seem, to af- we seem afraid to acknowledge that God is the judge of all people in the end. This idea is no different in the New Testament. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9, that God will be in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. This theme of judgment of all people that do not follow and submit to God is inescapable throughout Scripture. Habakkuk now sees that those that are benefiting through evil have much to fear. This is the first time that Habakkuk requests that God remember mercy in the wrath of his judgment, in the wrath of his justice. Seeing the greatness of the wrath and the mercy of God to save, Habakkuk sees that his perspective was originally limited. He was only asking for God's wrath against injustice. Habakkuk's perspective now has changed, though. Now he sees that God's mercy and justice together is better, or are better. He was asking God to be what he wanted God to be. We need to also discover the full personality of God. He was asking for God to be what he wanted, and now he is asking God to be who God really is. God is more complete than our perception of him. Sometimes we want God to just be our friend. Sometimes we want God to be the judge and punish evil that we see or evil around us. Sometimes we want him only to be forgiving. But God is more than all of that. We need to discover who God really is in Scripture and submit, as Habakkuk is doing in these verses, to the true God. So that's the opening. Moving into the next section, he's going to focus on the splendor and power of God. So these next verses are an overview of what Habakkuk actually saw. Try to imagine being Habakkuk and seeing the things that he is about to describe. You have been, or sorry, Imagine that you are a regular man that has been crying out to God about the corruption and the rebellion that you see among your people against God. You've been distraught, and then God answers your first prayer uh, with an answer that you did not fully understand. And so you are seeking God again for another answer, and you are expecting a similar response of words that you received the first time in an answer to your question. But instead, you see this vision. So starting in verse 3, it says that God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. So notice that Habakkuk is now speaking to us instead of God. This is because he is describing the vision for us. Taman and Mount Paran are places south of Judah. So he is seeing God coming up from the south. We will see in the imagery from the coming verses that that God is uh, in the image of a warrior. We know from verse 4 that God was emanating light. He says that the splendor covered the heavens. So imagine that you're seeing God coming, and he's emanating light, and literally there's light all around you because of this light emanating from God. 
And so Habakkuk is also, we see in verse 4, hearing praise. He says that it's, um, that the earth was full of his praise. So imagine that you're hearing praise of God all around you and seeing light emanating from God that's also surrounding you. This alone must have been breathtaking. And we can see why Habakkuk's perspective would have changed so much. Habakkuk is praising us, or praising God uh, to us uh, through these verses. So let's read on. Before him, this is God, before God went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So in verse 5, the idea of pestilence and plague going before and after God is that there is no escape from this judgment of God. When it comes, it comes in power and there is no escape. He also represents God as much larger than the earth. God judges the nations, he says. There's no strength in numbers against God. God's ways are everlasting, he says, and ours are limited. He also sees people far away in affliction. The tents of Kushan, this is a people far away, and, and people trembling that are far away. He, he references the Midianites. The point here is that God's reach is total when this judgment comes. Even people far away feel the magnitude of what's happening here. So from these verses of 3 through 7, Habakkuk has, has relayed the, the vision, and his emphasis is on the power and splendor of God. Before, Habakkuk was focused on the depravity and corruption close to him. I don't want to minimize that, but I want to point out that now he is focused on the greatness of God, and it is obvious that this new perspective has overwhelmed his previous thoughts. He is now praising God in all. He realizes how small he is. The problems of man seem small in comparison to the greatness of God. His hope is reinvigorated, and he rejoices in God's magnitude. When I was in college, I scaled the summit of the mountain at Breckenridge, Colorado. Seeing pictures of mountains is nice and beautiful, but seeing a picture is nothing in comparison to being on one in person. As I started to make my way up the mountain, it only became more impressive. And as I went higher, my journey up the mountain became more difficult. My nose started to bleed, and I could only take a, a few steps before needing to stop and breathe because the air was thin. But during this hardship, hardship I also grew to appreciate the mountain more. My view of its beauty deepened as I saw more of it and experienced more of its beauty. My perspective changed dramatically from before. Even though I had not reached the summit yet, I was already in awe of what I was seeing. And I would have testified to anyone in that moment that the experience of being on a mountain is worth the sacrifices that it takes to get there. However, I was still climbing the mountain. I had not yet reached the summit. In the end, when I reached the summit, I was expecting something amazing. 
because the journey had taught me to raise my expectations of the final destination. But nothing could have prepared me for how incredible it really was. The summit was spectacular. I was astonished by the view from the top of the mountain. There are no words that I can use to describe what it is like to be atop of a large mountain, looking down at the other mountains and valleys below. It was more than worth it. What Habakkuk is describing here is seeing the maker of mountains. He is not in the full presence of God that we will one day enjoy after this life, but he is getting a glimpse, and he is telling us that God is worth the hardships and the journey to get to him. So now moving into the next section, Habakkuk is going to be talking to God again. And he's going to be drawing attention to God's purpose in this judgment. So starting in verse 8, it starts with a question. He says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation... So here in verse 8, Habakkuk poses the question of why God has outpoured his wrath in this vision. What is the purpose of the judgment of God? Before he gives the, the answer, Habakkuk is going to give us a little more description of the judgment that he saw. Before he was talking to us about what he saw in the vision, now he is starting to interpret the meaning of this vision. And in order to do that, he gives us more details. So picking up in verse 9, he describes God's judgment like this. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. So he uses this vivid imagery to re-emphasize how great this judgment will be. In Hebrew, it's common for a writer to repeat ideas to show emphasis. In this second rep repetition of, of describing the judgment of God, Habakkuk wants us to understand how big and how terrible it's going to be. So moving forward into verses 12 and 13, he's going to give us the purpose, the answer to question 8, or posed in chapter 8. Uh, or sorry, verse 8. Uh, it says, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Salah. So in verse 12, we see that God is not an unfeeling and ambivalent God. He is angered by the same corruption and injustice that Habakkuk was seeing. And in verse 13, we see the two reasons of why God judges. First, God judges the wicked to save his people, to save his anointed. These are the chosen people of God that follow him. We are also part of this group. Paul describes the church, Christ's followers, as God's anointed in 2 Corinthians 1.21. It says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Same word. And in Romans 10, 13, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we see these two ideas of the anointed being saved also in the New Testament. God hasn't changed. 
The point here that Habakkuk is making is that God saves his people or will save his people. There's no difference between the Old Testament teaching about this and the New Testament teaching about this. In the second part of verse 13, we see that God judges the wicked to satisfy his anger or his wrath against sin. These two purposes are the answer to the question posed in verse 8. Habakkuk asks why God's anger or what God's anger was directed against. He answers it in verse 13 that God exacts his judgment against the prideful, laying him bare. In other words, stripping the prideful of his glory. And he also exacts judgment to save his anointed, those that put their faith in God instead of in themselves. This is justice in the eyes of God. Continuing in verse 14, Habakkuk again emphasizes the magnitude of the judgment a third time. The first time was in verses 5 through 7. The second time was in verses 9 through 11. And here we have the third description. It says, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. This is talking about uh, the wicked, or in this case, most likely the Babylonians. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So as I said, in Hebrew, it's common to repeat things um, to show uh, emphasis. And to repeat an idea three times is to show how total or complete the idea is. Habakkuk is repeating the description of the judgment a third time to show that it's going to be a complete judgment. Furthermore, he adds the idea um, that this judgment will be appropriate through the imagery of using the wicked's own arrows against him. In other words, God dispenses appropriate justice. God's wrath is not like our anger or our wrath. It is not emotional rage, it is not uncontrolled, and it is not petty. It is just the complete exercise of justice. But this is still terrible in total. So that's the third section. Moving to the conclusion, the focus here is going to be on praise of God uh, for his faithfulness and a recommitment from Habakkuk after seeing this vision to live faithfully and joyfully for God's salvation. So Habakkuk is now finished describing the vision and the purpose of God in the vision. And now he's going to respond to God before us. He's going to set the example of how we should respond to God. So starting in verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree, the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So, uh, again, we see that this is a psalm meant to be sung and learned by the people. As with the introduction, in Habakkuk's conclusion, he communicates fear and trembling in, in the presence of the greatness of God. 
But he adds in the conclusion his joy in God's salvation and praises God that God is his strength. Unlike the wicked that put their faith in their own strength. As we learned in chapter 1, Habakkuk and the righteous put their faith in God. God literally is their strength. Habakkuk speaks with resolute uh, commitment to wait for God. His trust in God is now complete. Though the expectations of provisions may fail, and he may face isolation and starvation, he will wait quietly for God's judgment and God's salvation. He, may, he will even rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of his salvation during these trials. I want you to look at how much the attitude of Habakkuk has changed. Seeing God has transformed him completely. He is a different man with a new energy and a renewed commitment. His faith is so strong that he considers it joy to wait in suffering for God to save. The key message here is that God is worth having faith in. Our God is faithful, and to know him is so much greater than any hardship that we may face on this earth. Habakkuk has just had a glimpse of the glory of the greatness of God, and yet this is not the full experience that we will enjoy after this life. Habakkuk has scaled a little way up the mountain, and he is telling us that it is worth it. The view of God is spectacular from where he is at, but he has not even been to the mountaintop. Just the glimpse of the glory of God has overcome him with joy and fear of God's greatness. The message has not changed for us today. The righteous, um, or sorry, God is worth uh, the hardship of waiting in faith for him to save. And he is telling us to live our lives in faith, in this faith. So the, this message has not changed uh, for us today. The righteous still live by faith, and to know God is still the ultimate experience available to us in this life and in the next. This is what it says in John seventeen three, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's one thing that can satisfy your soul and make all the hardships and trials worthwhile in this life, and that is to know the God that Habakkuk is talking about. He is the same God. He calls us to do the same thing. You can have, your, you can have comfort in putting your trust in this God, in the God. That is the point of this book. This is to be our way of life. Is this how you lived your day yesterday? how you went about your life yesterday. Do you truly believe that God is better than following your own ideas or your own perceptions of him? What drives you? We must learn to live by faith because God is our only real comfort and the only real thing worth living for. So I challenge us this week to live out every moment in this faith of God in the submission to his word. I challenge you to believe that studying scripture and getting to know God through it is more worthwhile than all the distractions that fight for our attention today in our culture. I challenge you to trust God with all the things that you don't understand, all the things that confuse you and overwhelm you. I challenge you to rest in Christ as your savior, as your savior and your comfort.
God is always with us. Live faithfully, moment by moment, in this truth. And I challenge you to wait on God in faithfulness like Habakkuk. Let's close. God, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are great. I thank you that you are the only God and that you are our God. I thank you that we can trust you to save us. And I thank you that you have more wisdom than we do, that you understand all the things that we don't. I thank you that we can just put our faith in you and trust you to take care of things and trust that there is a purpose for things and that obediently following you is worth it regardless of what may happen in this world regardless if things don't work out like what we thought they should i thank you that you are bigger than what we think and i ask that you help us put our faith completely in you and as we go to baptism i ask that we think about um, this picture of baptizing ourselves in you and living our life new, becoming newborn. God, I thank you that there is a purpose and a plan for all the things that we see today. And I ask that we trust you and have comfort in that. It's in your name. Amen.